Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. So uh, today we're going to talk about family, talk about God's family. And, uh, and so we want you to be a part of the Restoration family. But we hope that the Restoration family always points you to the family of God because that is the bigger context for us. So if you have your Bibles, open to Galatians chapter three. We're gonna finish up chapter three today and jump into the first part of chapter four. And uh, Yvonne and I, for more than 20 years, have been a part of foster care and adoption in Montgomery County. So in, in 2000, some friends of ours brought a chapter of Royal Family Kids Camp. It's a national organization, and uh, it, it's a camp for six to 12-year-olds that are in the foster care system. And so uh, they started this camp and they invited us to be a part of it through Woods Edge. And so for years and years, uh, that was kind of the thing that we would do together during the summer. We would serve these kids uh, in foster care. And then about 2006, I think, uh, Cindy Miracle, who was uh, a part of serving with us, felt a passion that we didn't want to lose contact with these kids when they were no longer eligible to be at these camps. And so she started an umbrella organization called Love Fosters Hope. It's one of our foster or one of our uh, partner ministries today. And uh, this umbrella organization we added, or she added, and we were a part of adding these three other camps, uh, Track Boys and Track Girls, which was for boys and girls 12 to 15 who were in the foster care system. So as they aged out of Royal Family Kids Camp, they got to move right in to track. And then for about five years, Yvonne and I had the privilege of directing the camp for the oldest kids called Bridge Camp. And this was a co-ed group, 16 to 19 years old, uh, that were primarily in the Montgomery County foster care system. So over the course of all of our time, we would meet kids at age six, and we would be able to walk with them year after year after year, all the way through them aging out of the foster care system. Uh, uh, many of them attend with, uh, Restoration today, and so um, uh, I see them regularly here, but uh, here's, here's the whole point uh, of these camps. The whole point of these camps is over a three, four, five day period, we get to help them create positive memories. And uh, these uh, kids are in foster care coming from some really rough situations. They're bouncing from home to home to home. Uh, they've got legal guardians, but they don't have parents often. And uh, they, they have a place to stay, but they don't always feel safe. And so for just these few days, um, we get the opportunity to love them, to show them the love of Jesus, to give them hope and peace and and it turned out that this became a haven for these kids. And year after year, as they would come back, we would do these photo albums. And uh, I know kids that have, you know, like uh, six to 18, how, many, how much is that, 12? Uh, they would have 12 
photo albums looking back every year and they treasure those things because for this moment in time, they felt a picture of what safety and security, love and peace and hope might look like. And so every foster child, the Bible uses the term orphan, longs for a permanent home. And so last week, Paul compared the promise, if you remember, the promise, the covenantal blessing that was given to Abraham. And he said, hey, your your offspring uh, is going to inherit this. And we decided that offspring, seed, both of those were singular, uh, meaning it was pointing to Jesus. If you remember, we talked about Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, that, that right there was this allusion to Jesus, that ultimately Jesus was going to fulfill the covenant blessing that you and I, when we receive Jesus, we are grafted into that covenantal blessing that was talked about all the way back in the beginning. So that's good news. And that the law, which came 430 years later, was simply a placeholder for Jesus. There's more to say about that as we get into the passage, but if you've been with us, we have talked about that ad nauseum. If you haven't, go back and listen to the podcast. But today, Paul will look at the concept from a different angle. He is going to look at moving from orphanhood to sonship. From orphanhood to sonship. So we're going to talk through what that means. But here is the concept in a nutshell. Uh, Children in foster care are appointed a guardian. They are appointed someone who has custody over them. They are given a temporary place to live. Hopefully their basic needs are met. But generally, it is always understood by both parties that this is a temporary situation. If you have been a part of foster care, um, a lot of people today want to foster to adopt because it's very hard to take someone in knowing that at some point they're going to leave your home, right? And so we know that foster care in and of itself is a temporary situation. However, an adopted child has a completely different experience. They no longer have a guardian, but a parent. They no longer have a permanent shelter, but a home. It's no longer about receiving basic needs, are you ready? But having full access to all the rights and privileges to being a part of the family. Adoption is not temporary, but permanent. And through the process, an adopted child takes on a new name, gets a new identity, and because of their permanent status, they are now heirs of the parents. So do you see where we're going? What we'll see in the passage today is that Paul is showing the Galatians, showing you and me, that in Jesus, they and we are no longer orphans under guardianship of the law, but sons and daughters of the living God because of the work of Jesus. And we are heirs and we get all the rights and privileges that go along with it. That's good news. So, before we get into the passage, let me just pump the brakes for a second. True confession, I am too often a son who lives as an orphan. How about you? Too often, I am a blood-bought son. I am an heir to the throne in the kingdom of God, and yet I continue to live as a slave. That's hard. That's hard. It, it's it's kind of hard for me to say because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to have it all together. Um, but but uh, in reality, I know me. 
I know that, that, that my heart wants to follow Jesus, but I also want my stuff. I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to make sure that everything fits into my construct of what I believe following Jesus needs to look like. And so I'm constantly, remember, we talked about last week, every time I take matters into my own hands, every time I compartmentalize my emotions and, and hold on to them, it is self-righteousness. It's me trying to determine my sense of self-righteousness. And so I can be a son, a much-loved son in the kingdom of God, but still live as a slave. That's a hard reality. Maybe you relate. So there's hope, and we're going to get to it in the passage, all right? So let's look at Galatians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 23. It says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Bless you. Okay, so Paul is setting up an analogy here. Uh, before Jesus, the law had custody and was a guardian for every person. So what does that mean? I mean, that's legal jargon, right? But he says that the law was actually a custodian and a guardian for every person. And so we talked about this for weeks, but uh, if you're here for the first time, let me just summarize it for you. The law was very simply a placeholder for Jesus. The law was a placeholder for Jesus. So um, until Jesus came to change and regenerate every heart, that would believe the law was external enforcement to keep us all in line. So we said this last week, um, but if you remember, uh, Matt, I was giving you that illustration about Matt Chandler, and, and the question was, why do we not speed badly? We all speed, but we don't want to speed badly. Which, parenthetically, someone texted me on Monday morning and said, hey, pastor, I'm on my way to Dallas. I'm on 45, cruise control set on 83. Thanks. That's what you got out of that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but here's the truth of the matter. The law did two things. It set boundaries around sin. Remember, we said sin actually just cages a lion, but it doesn't change the lion. It cages the lion, but it doesn't change the lion. And secondly, all the law does is expose sin exposes our predisposition towards sin. So Paul's just saying it in a different way. He uses the terms custody, guardian, uh, which in our culture today are legal terms. So I thought about this. So when my dad passed away a few weeks ago and I preached his funeral, um, I did not get up and say, um, my legal guardian passed away this week. The man who uh, was my custodian until I turned 18 died this week. No, I didn't use that jargon at all. Even though it's true that he was my guardian, that he was my custodian until I was of age, but you know what I called him? Dad. I called him dad. Why? Because I had an intimate relationship with him. 
And it was easy for me to call him dad because I loved him and because I talked with him. And uh, he was suffering from dementia at the end of his life. And uh, when I got there four days before he passed away, he was surprised to see me three different times. And so that was fun. Um, but, but at the end of the day, man, it, it just felt so good my entire life to feel loved by my dad. He had issues. I had issues. But it always feels good when I don't see my dad as a legal guardian, as a custodian or a trustee, but I see him as Abba Father. And we'll see that more in just a minute. Let's keep moving. Uh, Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. Okay, so look at what Paul's saying here. Uh, Jesus changes your status from orphan to son. He changes your status. You were this, now you're this. You were an orphan, but now you're a son. Several important things in here. First, he says, in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ? I mean, we talk a lot about receiving Christ. We talk a lot about, uh, you know, if you grew up in, in, in a stream of faith where they talked about inviting Jesus into your heart. So we know what it means for Christ to come in me, but what does it mean for me to be in Christ? So uh, this, is, this is one way to look at it. Uh, I'm a sports guy. Uh, and so uh, one way to look at it is that now that I am in Christ, I'm on team Jesus, And because I am on Team Jesus, I'm identified by the uniform I wear, okay? I'm really sorry that you chose to wear that Eagles jersey today. Um, Saw Austin before the service, and he said, I just want to see what kind of pastor you are, if you can stay focused and look at what's happened. Now you've got me interacting with you. Fly, Eagles, fly. Out of here. (laughs) We'll get to the part where God doesn't look at you differently because of that, all right? So that's coming. Uh, So what does it mean to be in Christ? So I'm on team Jesus, which means that I wear the uniform of Jesus. And so in this analogy, analogy, baptism represents my drafting or my initiation onto the team. Me having a public press conference saying, I am now identified as team Jesus. And then being clothed in Christ is the uniform that I wear. Paul uses this language in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3.12, he says this, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so he's giving this idea of, hey, if you clothe yourself in Jesus, there are some things that will identify you as being a follower of Jesus. So here's the rub. For a lot of you, uh, you see that verse, and maybe you jotted down the verse, but maybe you started writing down the characteristics because tomorrow morning, this becomes the checklist by which you identify your life, right? And so, oh, I need to be more compassionate, check. Oh, I just, random act of kindness, check. 
And we go down the list because we believe somehow that that makes us look more like Jesus. So here's the beautiful thing about being clothed with Christ. He is the one that puts the uniform on, not you. So this allows you to take a deep breath because one of the biggest problems in the church today is that we say yes to Jesus for heaven when we die and then try to look more Christian. And we, we see a verse like this and we immediately try to start checking these boxes to make ourselves look more Christian. And Jesus is like, hey, listen, I'm gonna take care of that for you. When you identify with me, and we'll see it at the end of the passage, when my spirit comes to live in you, I'm going to change your affections. I'm going to change the way you think. I'm going to change the way you talk, the way you walk. I'm going to begin to change the outflow of your life. And that is what being clothed with Christ looks like. You begin to look like Jesus. The problem is, for a lot of us, Your life looks the most like Jesus sitting here facing forward on a Sunday morning. But during your work week, it's like, so I would say if people are surprised to find out that you're a Christ follower, that's a problem. If people are surprised in your neighborhood that you follow Jesus because you basically look the same way every person looks, if there's no fruit in your life, no evidence that there has been a regeneration of your heart, you kind of go back to square one and ask the question, what did I actually or who did I actually give my life to? But this whole idea of being identified, Team Jesus, that's the team I play for. Um, I know a lot of Astro fans. Um, I, I'm a Ranger fan. I'm a Dallas sports fan. And so uh, last night they, they backed into the playoffs. They did everything that they could not to make the playoffs. And somehow they, they squeaked in. And so I know y'all are really praying for a loss today so the Astros can move into the, the, the AL West uh, lead spot. It's AL West, right? Yeah, okay, not really a baseball guy. But uh, I did watch this game last night and here's the thing that I thought about. They played the Mariners and there was never a moment in the game that I saw a player on the field and I'm like, oh, I wonder which team they play for. There was nobody on the Rangers that put on a Mariner jersey and, and, and went and, and, and kind of snuck over and were infiltrating the Mariners team. No, I knew who was playing for the Rangers because of the uniform they wore. And in the same way, as followers of Jesus, as we're clothed in Christ, you should be identified by the uniform that you're wearing. Every week, we talk about this whole idea of being love and peace and hope. And all of that happens in the secret place with Jesus. In the inner working of life change, the outflow of your life, the fruit of your life is birthed out of intimacy. And we'll dig into that a little more in just a minute. But in short, being in Christ is a team sport. It's not about individual accolades, right? It's not about you padding your stats. It's not about, hey, we lost by 20, but I scored two touchdowns. That reveals a little bit about my heart because I'm like, I don't know if we won, but I played great, right? But at the end of the day, being in Christ 
It's a team sport because it's this. It's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer that I don't live, but Christ who lives in me. Meaning this, when I said yes to Jesus, I gave up my rights to my agenda. He is now living in me and through me. And now I am identified on a bigger team. And it's a bigger picture. It's his world. I'm just living in it. Okay, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is a key verse here. And so Paul is contrasting three things. He says racial identity is not a prerequisite for salvation. He says social identity is not a prerequisite for salvation. He says sexual or gender identity is not a prerequisite for salvation. So why is he bringing this up? We gotta remember the context of the letter. Remember, there are a group of, of Jewish believers that are coming along behind Paul and they are preaching a different gospel, which he says is really no gospel at all. It's these Jewish believers that are saying, hey, Gentiles, you need to look more Jewish. In fact, if you wanna follow Jesus, you need to follow Jesus in a Jewish context. You need to follow the law of Moses and you need the outward sign of circumcision in order to be a follower of Jesus. And so what does Paul say? He's like, hey, listen, in the kingdom of God, there's not Jew and Gentile. That is not a prerequisite for salvation. You don't have to become more Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. It says in the kingdom of God, you don't have to be a slave or free because that is not a prerequisite for salvation. Your socioeconomic situation is not a prerequisite for salvation. Also in that culture, it was very uh, uh, man-centered, very hierarchical, and so women were being oppressed in that culture. And he's like, hey, listen, the gender by which you were born is not a prerequisite for salvation. So he's making a clear statement. So here's what Paul was not saying. He wasn't saying that you lose racial identity that you lose social identity, that you lose gender identity when you're in Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying it's not a prerequisite for salvation. But here's the truth of the matter. God created you just like you are in your space, in your time. He created you just like you are. And Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created what? In Christ Jesus on his team to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So we don't lose our racial identity when we say yes to Jesus. No, he saves us just like we are and then sends us back into our context. He doesn't, he doesn't save the person in a, in a hard socioeconomic situation and go, hey, when you say yes to me, you're gonna be rich now. That's very common in our culture today, right? It's a very common stream of faith to say, in Jesus' man, throw it all out the window, name it, claim it. He doesn't say, women in the room, please hear me say this, you are not less than in the kingdom of God because you are female. Amen. What he's saying is all of us, all of that, none of that is a prerequisite for salvation. There are no less thans in the kingdom of God. And we get to celebrate that. 
We get to move and live and breathe into that, knowing that he, he loves you so much that he created you just like you are. And then he saves you, he regenerates your heart, and he sends you back into your times and back into your spaces to, to be and bring his kingdom, yes, amen. to be a part of the puzzle of the kingdom of God. Look at this, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this is the first time he's gonna use the word heir. He'll use it four times in the, in the verses coming. But, but look at this, in Christ, your identification changes. He says in Christ, you're what? You're Abraham's seed. Who did we decide was Abraham's seed last week? Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's seed and he says now because of your identification with Jesus, now you are Abraham's seed. And what are the implications? You get all the rights and privileges for being an heir with Christ in the kingdom of God. Yes. What does that mean? That means when the father looks at the son and he says everything that I have is yours, because you're identified in Jesus, he looks at you and says everything I have is yours. He withholds nothing from you. Do you believe that? Yes. No, you don't. You don't, because if you did, you would live differently. If you really believed that you have everything you need, if you are truly an heir and have all the rights and privileges with being a child of God in the kingdom of God, it would change the way you walk. You would be walking with spiritual swagger. Not arrogance, but you'll be walking in confidence in who he's made you to be. Yes, but we're the most fearful, anxious people on the planet. We trust God for salvation and then we hide ourselves from the world because it's really scary out there. But at the end of the day, we have been called to go into the world, not to be in the world or not to be of the world, but we gotta be in the world. We're the hope of the world. You realize that, right? The church is God's plan for the world. And so we don't shrink back. We don't hide. We don't sit around and talk about all the ills in the world. No, we run after darkness, in the darkness. Amen. And listen, if you don't know who you are, you'll never make it. In fact, for a lot of us, we have misunderstood what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And so we've run in the world and then we look out there and we've become part of the world. Because you don't understand who you are and what you've been called to do. You're an heir of the promise of covenantal blessing. You have been grafted into the family of God. If this is true of the Galatians, the unclean, dirty Gentiles, if it's true of them, it's true of you. You unclean, dirty Gentiles, <laughs> right? I mean, it's true of you and me. This is who we are. And God does not look on you, look at you based on your race, based on your social, socioeconomic standing, based on your gender. He just looks at you and says, hey, you could never, through your self-righteousness, attain goodness, enter Jesus. And when you say yes to Jesus, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter who you are. Not only do I accept you, I don't just accept you as a child, but as an heir. Yeah. 
Come on, let's keep working through this. Uh, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also when we were underage, we were slave. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And so again, he's contrasting the promise and the law. The promise of heirship was held in guardianship by the law. So very simply, what Paul was saying is that the final plan was always Jesus. Yes. It was always Jesus. God didn't get down the road about midway through the Old Testament around Hosea and start thinking, man, I need a plan. <laughs> Y'all are jacked up. <laughs> he didn't start scrambling for a solution. No, his plan was always Jesus. Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world. Immediately, there's an allusion to Jesus that he's gonna stomp on the head of the enemy. It's right there in Genesis three. And then we see it again in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 throughout the Old Testament. He was prophesying, listen, I got this under control. You will be blessed through a seed, through an offspring. It's always been about Jesus. Adoption, restoration, reconciliation was always on the mind of God and the law was a placeholder. Until when? Until the appointed time. Until the appointed time. Look at what he says in verse four. But when the set time had fully come, let's pause right there. But when the set time had fully come. What does that tell us? God had set a time. He had a plan. And he says, when it was time, that is when he activated his plan. So let's just pause here for a second and just remember that your idea of time and God's idea of time are way different. Our construct, chronos, of what we know as time is not uh, God's idea of time. His Kairos time looks nothing like our construct of time. And so you're praying for something. It's not uh, coming to happen the way that you want it to. And what happens? You get discouraged. You decide God doesn't hear me. God doesn't care. God is holding out on me. Does this sound familiar? Where are you, God? Why aren't you answering me? And know this, I've done it. But what if... God knows your situation better than you do. What if what you see as him holding out is that he actually has a plan and his plan is better than your plan? What if he gave you everything you wanted? You've seen Bruce Almighty. It doesn't work out well. <laughs> At the end of the day, God's construct of time, it's a construct of time. He is in control and he has a plan. It's literally his world. We're living in it. And so if we could move to a place of gratitude, recognizing that I don't know, but I don't have to know. I can just trust that God is good. His way is always good. Even when things get hard, it changes the way I live. Because here's what it said. When the time fully came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. An intricate plan. At the appointed time, God did what? Sent. God sent 
his son. So there are two cents in the next two verses. God sent his son, Jesus. We know this verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved, for God so loved, for God so loved, I'm just gonna keep saying it, for God so loved, until you all say it with me, for God so loved, for God so loved the world. And this is not, insert your name in there. No, God loved the world. You are in the world, but you are not the world in and of itself. God sent his son to the world. And so what was the role of Jesus? Why did he send his son? He sent his son to give an alternative to living under the law. This new construct. He's like, hey, the law brings slavery. The law cages the lion, exposes sin. But Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again so that we could be forgiven so that our sin once and for all would no longer be held against us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it. It says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be called the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus did. Jesus died in your place. And he says, he was born of a woman, he was born under the law, so he took on sin on your behalf, being sinless, so that we could be redeemed so that we could be saved and changed. It says that we might receive adoption into sonship. Adoption into sonship. What does that mean? So this is not simply legal language. Now we're getting personal, right? Adopted into the family. In Jesus, you become a member of the family of God. Come on, y'all. So uh, we've had the opportunity since we started Restoration uh, to be at a lot of adoptions. And so in Montgomery County, uh, there's an adoption day and the judge will call a family in. And like for us, there have been a lot of people that have come. And I think about uh, when Michael and Carrie Hogan, uh, when they adopted JoJo and Chrissy, we were there. When Brent and Sabrina adopted uh, another JoJo, a female JoJo, um, uh, we were there. Uh, When Dean and Ashley Hall adopted Zoe, we were there. And it's just so cool because there's a moment when the judge reads the child's new name, new identity, and, and now they are identified with this new family, and, and, and then he hits his gavel, and we all cheer, and then we all get together. I know Brad and Tricia, you've been a part of that process, and, and, and there's this new thing that's happening, right, in this child's life. We know the trajectory of their life has changed forever. They were orphans. Now they're adopted into a family and they get all the rights and privileges that go along with that. But look at this, verse six. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Okay, so first, he sent the son to to create this external construct to come and live and die and forgive sin and create a new pathway. Do you see it? 
You're living under the law. You're living under self-righteousness. Jesus came to chart a new path. And so that is this external. Now you get to choose which path do I want to choose. So that's an external change. But now it says God sent his spirit. And then he says the spirit of his son. So the Holy Spirit here, he's defining as the spirit of Jesus. And he says now it is the internal dwelling, not of the world, but of the heart. Now it gets personal. God sent the Son to create this alternative to the law. Then he sends the Spirit to draw you into it. And everyone that says Jesus, how many of you identify as a follower of Jesus today? Awesome. So if you identify as a follower of Jesus, it means you have the Spirit of Jesus living on the inside of you. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel to know that not only do you have the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the son living in you, but now because of that, you are an adopted son and daughter of the most high God and you actually have all the rights and privileges that go along with being a child in the kingdom of God. There you go. I mean, that's good news. That we spend most of our life in what we call biblical Christianity, trusting Jesus to stay out of hell and then kind of making it up in our own self-righteousness trying to make a way. Because you don't really believe that you have all the rights and privileges in living in the kingdom of God. That when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you and go, uh, No, in fact, the spirit of the son in you, look at what he says, he cries out. Abba, Father. That word Abba in Aramaic, it means father, but but in our culture today, it would be more daddy. Daddy. This intimate term. He's moving from the legal standing of guardian and custodian to father, to daddy. So here's what you can know. When you said yes to Jesus and the spirit came to live and dwell inside of you, to to change the way you think, to commune with you, to teach you how to look more like Jesus, how to put on the uniform, he's always calling out, Abba, Father. It's a picture of intimacy. He is drawing you into an intimate relationship with the Father. If that's a disconnect for you, it's because every day the enemy wants to convince you of who you're not. The enemy wants to keep you in a cycle of shame. He wants to keep you believing that you're less than. And yeah, uh, you're, you're in the kingdom, but you're not worthy to really have all the rights and privileges because of something you've done. And hey, listen, if that were the case, I would not be here today. I'd probably work in a 7-Eleven down the street. Because I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of where I am, but it's never been about me. It's about what Jesus and the regeneration that has taken place in my life. It's not about me, it's about Christ in me. And now, because he's in me and I'm in him, that is a lethal combination in the kingdom of God. Okay, here's where we land. Are you ready? So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. 
And so here's where we land. God doesn't move you from slave to child. He moves you from slave to heir. Do you see that? And it's not even like starter kit, right? He doesn't say, I'm gonna move you from slave to child and let's just kind of sit back and see how it works out. He immediately moves you from slave to heir. Some of you, depending on what you believe about heaven, you truly believe that one day you're gonna die and you're gonna get to heaven and I guess St. Peter's there because that's where all the jokes start, right? And, and, and he says, hey, why shall I let you into my kingdom? And you go, well, because of Jesus. And he goes, great. And then you stand up against the pearly gates. And like 400 yards away, you see on this big concert stage like Woodstock, Jesus is up there rocking it with his angel band. But you're standing here up against the gates. You're in, but you're barely in. And we can joke about it, but for a lot of us, that's how you live your life. You live in this place of unworthiness where you say, hey God, I... I fundamentally know that you love me, but I know that I'm really not worthy because of things that I've done to be called your son. That being the case, just know you come by it honestly. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a son. We know him as the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? That the son wants what he wants and he grabs his inheritance and it says he goes off and he spends it on, uh, most translations say loose living, let you figure that out. But it says after he spent all the money, after it's done, he ends up living as a slave in someone's house and he's in the pigsty and he's eating the food for the pigs. Do you remember that? And it gets so bad, again, pain is a great motivator. He gets to such a broken place that he looks up and he's like, ah, man, I'd rather be a servant in my dad's house to live this way. And so he heads home and I got to imagine he's rehearsing his speech every day on the way home. He's walking and he's like, father, I'm not worthy to be called a son. Can I just be a slave in your house? And he's saying it and he's like, ah, how do I say that more eloquently? And he's thinking through it. And what is he doing? He's living from this place of shame. And then the story goes that he's coming down the road. The father sees him from a long way off and comes running out to meet him. And what does he do? He immediately goes into his spill. Hey, dad, uh, man, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I just, man, can I just be a slave in your house? And what happens? Ring, robe, fatty calf, celebration. The father says, you had me at hello. Literally, when I saw you down the road, all I cared about is that you've come home. You know who you are in the story, right? I know that I have been the prodigal son. Pain was a huge motivator for change for me. And so the question becomes, okay, so how do I move from, from shame to freedom? How do I think in a new way? It's the next right step. 
When did it change for, the, for this son? The minute he thought to himself, I need to get out of this situation. The minute he turned to go home, change was coming. For some of you today, you've got to receive that you're afraid to come back to the Father because you're afraid of the shame that you're going to live in. You're afraid. You're afraid to tell the truth. You're afraid to tell the truth to God, even though he already knows. You're afraid to tell the truth to something that's happening in your sphere because you're afraid of being judged, afraid of being misunderstood. And all God is saying is, listen, you had me at hello. You're coming home. I've got a ring for you. I've got a robe for you. I've got a fattened calf for you. I've got a celebration for you. Why? Not because of you, but because of Christ in you. He says, I want to give you all the rights and privileges that go along with being a child of God because of Jesus, because of what he's done. So today, You can live spiritually as an orphan, but at the end of the day, that's a choice that you'll make because Jesus created a new pathway, a pathway to citizenship, a pathway to adoption, but not just to become a child, but to become an heir. And he's inviting you into this adventure to live like royalty in the kingdom of God. He's inviting you not into a mindset of scarcity, but into a mindset of abundance. And this is not name it and claim it. This doesn't mean you're gonna get a boat or Mercedes. Um, That's not the point. The point is you are transcendent over tough circumstances because you have a peace that only Jesus could give. And that alone is abundance enough to live this life.